everyone. Welcome to Sabbath School Gems, where each week we showcase key concepts from this week's Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School lesson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Sabbath School Gems. This is lesson one for the fourth quarter for Sabbath, October 2, 2021, and it's titled Preamble to Deuteronomy. And it's from our very new quarterly that's called Present Truth in Deuteronomy. And this is really exciting. This is a new quarter, and I'm so excited that we are going to be going into Deuteronomy because it is such an important book. The author starts out by kind of giving a background of maybe why it's important to go through this or what happened in the past anyway. So he recounts the time during King Josiah. So he reigned 640 to 609 B.C., and they found the book of the law now, which they think is Deuteronomy. Now, it's sometimes it's referred to the book of the law of Moses or the book of the law given by Moses or the book of the law of God given by Moses or just the book of the law of God. There's a lot of different references for this. And um, usually it's either referring to the Torah or the first five books of the Bible or to this book in Deuteronomy. They think that's what they found. But in any case, I think we have to be mindful that this is an important book. This is not just a book of the law of Moses. This isn't Moses' law. This is a recount. Deuteronomy is really a recount of the Exodus and the, and the things that transpired. So in some ways, it's a little bit duplicate of things in Exodus and Leviticus, but it's a, it's a good summary book. But it's really recounting the time when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. He wanted to make a covenant with them. He met with Moses on the mount in thunderings and lightnings. This has never before happened. It never happened before that, and it's never happened since, where God has spoken directly to man and to a people, to a group of people that are gathered together. So, and, and to convey who he is and in a, in a loud, audible way that was written down. So, you know, this is not some minor thing. This is not some book of Moses that somehow, um, you know, takes second tier to, to, to what God wrote with his finger. This is all spoken words spoken by God, and it's being recounted in this book. So when it's referring to the book of the law of Moses, it's not really talking about the law of Moses. It's really talking about the law of God. And this time in, during King Josiah, when they found this book, which they believe to be Deuteronomy, what happened after that? There was a reformation. The people said, wow, we didn't know that's what was said in there. And there was really a spiritual revival almost that happened. And that's not the only encounter that, that the Bible records. There was another time that they had this similar revival. And it was during the time of Nehemiah. And I mean, it's, it's found in Nehemiah 8. And it was when the captives came back from Babylon. So the exiles had returned and Ezra read to all the people in the assembly, the book of the law of Moses. This is the book of the law of Moses, but he read this, which we believe is Deuteronomy. And he read it to all the people, the hearing there, and they just read it day after day after day. And there again, there was a big revival. 
they were saying, wow, we didn't know this information was in here. We didn't know this is what God said. And, and so I think it sounds like the author of this quarter, which I think is Clifford Goldstein, it sounds like he's maybe hinting that maybe that would be, that would be a good thing if, if somehow we go through Deuteronomy and, and there's a revival that comes out of it. So I'm really looking forward to this quarter. Now, Sunday's lesson starts with the idea that God is love and that God's love permeates the universe and that God created man with the ability to love, which means he also gave us the ability or necessarily had to have to have the ability to have the freedom to love. So the freedom to choose to love or not to be able to love. And we'll go into that a little more. But I think um, there's an idea that God made us perfect but then iniquity can be found in us and so this is what happened to satan we can read this in ezekiel 28 starting in verse 13 it says you were in eden the garden of god every precious stone was your covering the sardius topaz and diamond beryl onyx and jasper sapphire turquoise and emerald with gold the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created you were the anointed cherub who covers I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now this verse is really gives the idea that God made us perfect. He did not invent or create evil. He did not create Satan to be evil. He created us perfect. And this idea is sometimes muddied when people talk about what happened in the Garden of Eden. And they say, well, Eve ate of the fruit. She decided to disobey God, so she sinned. And then now we're just all doomed. We're just, it, it totally altered the whole universe, and now we're just all doomed, and now we're born to sin. We're just born into this sinful state. And I don't subscribe to that. I almost think that's kind of a, I don't like to single out the, the churches, but I think it's almost like a Catholic idea. You know, my mom grew up in an all-girls Catholic school in the eastern part of the United States, and it was very, very strict, run by nuns. And they just gave the children from a very early age this idea that, you know, there's just this bad, that you're just bad, and, and you have to, you know, watch everything there's there's just so much bad and these are just little kids i mean they don't but they have to have this concept of of this guilt all the time and then they have to confess and and it's just um it's the idea that we're just somehow we're flawed and i don't agree with that i think that god really makes us perfect now are we perfect in this world no we have genetic d diseases disorders they don't even know all the genetic issues that we all have at this point in earth's history there's so many and there's all kinds of things that you inherit from your parents there's the environment is terrible some people have to grow up in a really bad environment and so there's a lot of things that are not ideal i'm not saying that it's everything's perfect when we come into the world but i think spiritually there is some perfection there at least there's the idea that we're capable of perfection because if we start thinking that we're just somehow we're just flawed and they're you know we just got born into this universe that's just so bad and you know it, it i don't think it's really helpful to get us to the point 
where we need to be, where God really wants to cleanse us. He wants to make us perfect and be his bride. And so I, I think that concept is not really helpful for, for and, and probably detrimental for us forming that close relationship with God. So I think it's really important to realize and to accept the idea that God made us perfect. Um, now this idea that iniquity can come into us, how does that happen? Is that by choice or is that just can happen? It's pretty clear in the Bible that at least in the case of Satan, it was by actions. So where actions are our choice. Um, it says still in Ezekiel, it says, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, a covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. So this is describing an action. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom, you know, by the abundance of your trading. So it's talking about actions, and these actions are causing this to happen now in isaiah 14 we can read the same thing it says how you are fallen from heaven o lucifer son of the morning how you are cut down to the ground you who weaken the nations for you have said in your heart i will ascend into heaven i will exalt my throne above the stars of god i will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north so here again this is the pride this is it's an action, it's a decision. And you know, we can see if we look at some other characters like Cain, you know, God says, why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. So we see that idea of a choice. There's a choice, God's as asking Cain, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Don't you know if you just do what is right, you know, you're gonna be okay. And so there's this implication here that there's a choice going on, that this is that this is not just iniquity just happens to get into us, like we get contaminated because we touch something. This is brought about by our own choices. And the same thing with Judas, when Jesus said, Judas, are you gonna betray the son of man with a kiss? I mean, he's asking a question because it really is, a question because there's a choice there. He can do it or he cannot do it. And so I think that it's pretty clear that there is, that this iniquity is being brought about by our own actions, by our choice. So there is a choice in this. And, you know, we think about the third of the stars being cast to the earth and the, the third of the angels. So it sounds like they had a choice too. I mean, why was it a third? Why, if they didn't have a choice, it would probably be all or nothing. So um, it does seem like there's this choice involved with whether the iniquity is found in us. So it still doesn't answer the question about why true love requires freedom. Uh, freedom does leave open the possibility of rede rejection. And the lesson study says, well, you know, you don't want a robot. I mean, you're not going to have love from a robot. And that's true. You're not going to, you know, that's not going to be true love. But I don't think it's really intuitive to think that you need this freedom i mean obviously yeah if you have a slave it, that's not a, a a relationship 
you know, God wants it more like a marriage where both parties are in agreement and you choose to love. But it still doesn't answer it because there's, we have examples today of relationships, like, for example, the animals, our pets. You know, you give them a certain amount of love and attention and they give it back to you. And there is some exchange like that. And if you think about it, we're kind of like on a lower level as the animals are to us that God is to us. Just like children are on a sort of lower level than their parents just in their understanding and their reasoning ability and their knowledge. And so I think God shows us these patterns because I think he wants us to understand that he is God. He is so much above us. He probably has this whole other world, just like my cat doesn't know when I go to work, doesn't have any clue what my other world is like. I think we don't have a clue what God's other life and world is like. And yet, so you could think that why can't he just have us kind of like the animals? The animals don't really know good and evil. They just love and and they exchange that love. But I think what it is is God wants us, I mean, one thing it tells us is that God wants us at a certain level. I think he really does and did want us to know good from evil. I think that's why he put the tree there. He wasn't just putting the tree there some just wanted to see man fail. I think he really did intend for us at some point to have the knowledge of good and evil so that we could understand him at that level and communicate with him and have a relationship with him at that level. So I think it shows that he wants us to be at a certain level of intimacy. You know, you can't really communicate things with your cat that you can with your spouse. And so to me, that that does show that it still doesn't quite answer why we have to be free to love, though. And I think that answer is really in the fact that if we are free to love another being and we are free to love God and we can choose, I think it we're also free to love ourselves. And if we're free to love ourselves, this is what we see was happening with this iniquity that was in Satan. This was like the original sin that he wanted his splendor. He wanted to be better. He wanted to be great. And, and so I think that that's really why there's this freedom involved and why there's this choice that has to come. Because if we're free enough to love other beings, we can love ourselves. And now all of a sudden, we're in a realm that's against God. Something is in between us and God. Monday talks about the fall and the flood and Adam and Eve. Let's just read in Genesis 3, 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the free fruit of the tree as of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God knows that in the day you eat it of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a de tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then you know the story from there. So Adam and Eve had a choice, but were they really choosing between good and evil? You know, we always say, well, she chose good and evil because she could obey God or not obey God. But they couldn't have had a choice between good or evil because they didn't understand the concept of good or evil. And we can sin without knowing we're sinning. In fact, the Bible is has a lot of examples where they would bring the sacrifice when they finally f- discovered or realized that they had sinned because they would do something and they wouldn't know that they were sinning. And then as soon as they realized that was wrong, then they would bring their sacrifice. And so the, there was these sacrifices being brought for behaviors and actions that the person didn't know they were sinning at the time. So we know that it's possible to go against the order of God's universe and to sin without even realizing it. So obviously that's what happened with Eve, but I don't know if we can really, we can't really choose between good and evil if we don't have the knowledge of good and evil. So I think her choice was really to trust or not to trust God. Her wrong, if you want to call it that, was really not to trust God, which, you know, she didn't, I mean, Satan was deceiving her. He was saying, you know, God is not really telling you the truth. He's not really trustworthy. And she didn't know. So she chose not to trust. And that is a really vital lesson for all of us. That's the lesson we should be getting out of the Garden of Eden is that we need to trust God even with things we don't know. There's a lot of things that we don't know, but we need to be able to have a relationship with God so that we really trust him. When he tells us something, he wants to reason with us. He wants us to understand things. He doesn't want to just, okay, we'll do this, do this, do this. I mean, that's evident in the Bible, the way he describes things and the way we can see that he's trying to describe to us why his laws are good. But I think we also need to have that trust with things that we don't quite understand. And that will be our protection. That's when God can protect us as long as we are come under his umbrella and we say, okay, God, I don't understand this but I'm going to trust you. Now, Eve didn't know. She got deceived by Satan, but God wants us to know. That's why he put the story in here. He wants us to know ahead of time that Satan is trying to deceive us. He's trying to discredit the character of God and, 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 and make things gray. <laughs> and so we can't see God. So that is important to take away from, from that. Now, Tuesday's lesson talks about the call of Abraham and how Abraham is called out of his land and God explains his promise to him. We can find that in Genesis 17, starting at verse 1. And this is when Abram was 99 years old and God appears to him and describes to him the covenant. So I'll just read starting at verse Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. 
and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you were a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And Abraham and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. And then it goes on to describe the, the symbol of the covenant is going to be the circumcision. But that's just a symbol of this covenant relationship that he wanted to establish with Abraham and with all his descendants. Now, Moses continues that. He is trying to describe to the people. Now he brought them out, out of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt with Moses leading and he wants to describe to the people this covenant this you know he's reiterating this same covenant look god is promising you the promised land and this abundance but they don't want to enter into this covenant um and this the the lesson study calls out the recollection of this in acts and it's a good summary of it so i'll just read this in acts and it says when 40 years had passed, so this is after the children of Israel came out of Egypt. When 40 years passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? And he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is, is written in the book of the prophets. So we can see that they, it says that they received the law given by angels, but they did not keep it. And that kind of leads us into Wednesday's lesson, which talks about the covenant at Sinai. And the idea that they didn't keep the covenant, the terms of the covenant, and they didn't 
those people anyway that came out did not enter the promised land. And by not keeping that covenant, not entering into that relationship, they weren't protected. They, they just went and they made an idol. They sacrificed to the idol. And then God just let them have the worship that they wanted to have because they really didn't want to have that relationship. Um, and we can read that in Exodus 19.4. It says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. This is God speaking. This is the, ter- this is the covenant. You will hear, obey my voice, and keep my covenant. So you will enter, if you will enter into this relationship, you will be the special people above all the earth. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. And then all the people answered and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So here God is saying, if you would just hear my voice, then I will be your God and you will be my people. And the people at first, they say, yeah, we'll keep it. Um, We'll do everything that you say we'll do. Now, keep in mind that they didn't really have a good idea about that because back in Deuteronomy 5.27, when they came out of Egypt and Moses went up to the mountain, they, the people didn't want to commune with God. And we'll just read Deuteronomy 5.27. It says, You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say, and tell us that the Lord our God says to you, and we will hear and do it. So see, right away, they're saying to Moses, you go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say, and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you, and we will hear it and do it. Now, why are they asking Moses to go? I mean, this is the, the first red flag here. Well, there's a lot of red flags before that. Um, you know, they just kept murmuring and murmuring. But here, at this point, where they get to the mountain, and God wants to meet with them, and they, they, they say, you go, Moses, because they didn't really want the covenant relationship. I think from the very beginning, you know, people say, well, you know, this whole, it, you know, this whole thing, God gave them the covenant, but they couldn't keep it, and they didn't keep it, and so now God has to go to plan B. I don't, really think that i think god is trying to describe the covenant he's offering it to abraham and isaac and jacob and now he's with moses and he's describing it and he's offering it to the people but i think the people don't want to hear god's voice they want moses to go up just you go as an intermediate and then when moses doesn't come down he delays a little bit they're building their their golden calf they're they're worshiping something else they want some intermediary that they can have and worship at their own leisure and they can leave because you know an idol you can worship and then you can just leave it and you can come back to it if you want you know if you've got a golden calf or something but god is wants a really intimate relationship with us he wants to write his laws in our hearts 
So right away, they were kind of putting a distance between them and God. And one of the other things, the lessons that he brings out is this idea about the blood and that it, it brings up Hebrews 9.19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people and according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And so it asks the question, now, what is the significance of the blood? Well, this is a really super important covenant. It was, you know, recall with Abraham, it was sealed. The sign was the circumcision. It was the blood of the circumcision. And this is sealed with blood as well. So what is that significance? Well, I mean, if you enter into an agreement and there's blood involved, it's it, you're pretty much saying, I am not going to break this. Oh, like over my dead body, am I going to break this covenant? You are making an oath that you are just not going to break. I mean, to break that oath, the only way you can break it is if you die. It's the blood is really signifying, I think, the strength of that oath, of that relationship. It's so strong. You know, when you say your vows before God, when you get married, that's, that's, that's kind of the same thing you're you're swearing before god or you're 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 saying to god this is what you're going to do and you're not going to break off this relationship and i think this idea of blood is just signifying that's how serious this relationship is and that's and god wanted them to be special now they the specialness this this kingdom of priests and a holy nation why where they needed to be special. What did that mean? Well, I think in one sense, they were going to be his bride. They were going to be his special people in this intimate relationship. Now, the interesting thing is back in Exodus 19, verse 5, when it talks about that, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It says, for all the earth is mine. All the peoples, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation among all the peoples, but all the earth is mine. Now, why does it say all the earth is mine? I think it's because he knew that these people, they were, they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to help all the rest of them also enter into this relationship. In other words, God doesn't want just a little token of people. He wanted everybody. He was going to have the special people. They were going to be the priests. They were going to be the messengers. They were going to be the ones that described God and so that Satan couldn't, you know, so they could counteract Satan's lies about God. And they would be the ones that conveyed that and the spreading the word of him. And the interesting thing is that even though they really didn't enter the promised land, because I think the promised land, you know, I, I think it, it was in the Friday's lesson that it has that quote from Ellen White in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 392, that says, the decree that Israel was not to enter Canaan for 40 years and was a bitter disappointment to Moses and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua, yet without a murmur, they accepted the divine decision I think the reason why they accepted that divine decision without a murmur is because at that point, when Moses got taken up to the mountain, he knew 
that this was a bigger picture. He knew that this promised land and everything was a much bigger picture than just the promised land that they saw before them. And I think Joshua and Caleb probably saw that as well, and probably Abraham knew it. So this idea that they they didn't, I mean, it's true that they, that even the people that came out of Egypt, that even that generation didn't actually get to go into the promised land. They were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. They actually didn't, but they're, their offspring did get to go in there and Joshua and Caleb also went in. But this whole idea is that even though they really didn't in the end realize this promised land, I mean, even to this day, we know thousands of years later there, I mean, I know there's people still looking for this promised land on this earth, but this promised land is a, a much bigger picture. But even so, I think the interesting thing is that they did fulfill the mission of specialness of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation because they wrote these words. They wrote these words. Moses wrote these words down that were spoken to Moses. And we have these words recorded. We have Deuteronomy. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have this these words written down. And they show this whole picture of God and they have been for all the earth and all the generations since that time. And so in some respects, they really ended up being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, maybe it was not all of them, whoever God could work through to preserve these words for us. But I think that aspect of specialness, they did fulfill the aspect of specialness where they are be to be his bride, I think that is open for all the peoples of the earth because it says for all the earth is mine. He wants this covenant relationship, I believe, with everyone. Everyone's on the earth, everyone who will hear his voice and obey, trust, and want to enter into this relationship with him. So now what happens, Thursday lesson, what happens if we don't do this. This is apostasy and punishment. Yes, they didn't enter into the covenant. They didn't enter the promised land that everyone in that generation died. So this is just telling us that if we don't want to be under God, we don't want to enter into this covenant relationship, he can't protect us. And the end really is death. Now, will he give us some life here? I'm sure he will, just like he gave Cain. Cain said, what, they're going to kill me and I'm rejected by you, and then man is just going to kill me, and I'm not going to have anything. God said, okay, I'll put a mark on you. No one's going to kill you. You're going to have this life. But if we don't choose God, and we don't choose to enter this relationship with him, he can't be our God. He can't protect us. He can't deliver us. And he ultimately gives us life, so we cannot have life. And we will wander in this land, I think. That was our last quarter's lesson on on just rest and restlessness. And I think that we will have a life and a lot of people will have a fairly good life. But, but if we don't choose God, we don't enter this relationship, we don't have much more to look forward to. And we, we're not going to get into that promised land, that land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and was reiterated in Moses' time. So I think we'll wrap it up here with this 
overview. Hopefully we'll get into more details of each of these topics in the weeks to come. So bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sabbath School Gems. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word to others. Comments and questions can be sent to us at sabbathschoolgems at gmail.com. Bye for now.